Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Psst, buddy, I got a hot stock tip for you. No, not Chipotle or Apple or Facebook or Boston Market. I'm talking 7%. A little over 7% compounded annually doubles your money over a decade. Sounds easy enough, don't it? But it's actually far easier said than done for most individual investors who have a penchant for buying high, selling low, and freaking out at the worst possible times. By many measures, most investors earn a fraction of the market's overall return. Every percentage point matters, people. Slow, steady, dispassionate. My guests today know this all too well, so pay close attention and learn something. You'll thank me in 30 years. Joining us from LA is Meb Faber, founder of Cambria Investment Management, an LA-based investment advisor that is a specialist in asset allocation. Thank you, good sir. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You should also know that Meb is keeper of the Idea Farm, which I call an indispensable compendium of investing curation. So you got to check it out online. And uh, in studio here in Richmond is Jeremy Schwartz, director of research at Wisdom Tree Financial, which is a $40 billion large ETF provider. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Robin, and, and nice to talk to you on the phone, Meb. As well. Excellent, excellent. So, guys, let's talk about this for a minute, jump ball. Um, you know, Jack Bogle, uh, the legendary uh, index fund, mutual fund pioneer, talks about this kind of, this market return out there, which I believe, according to Ibbotson, is 9, 9.2% over the long run. That is something that should be every American's God-given right. It's very easy to access. You no longer have to pay a broker to buy you Blue Horseshoe or Teldar paper. Uh, you know, most mutual funds don't even meet that bogey. So, but people are their own worst enemies, Jeremy, and we've seen this time and again. And you guys look at the numbers. It's one thing for the average investor to be earning 2% over the last 20 years compounded. It's another thing for them to aspire to the 7%. The market could give them over the long, long run 9.2%. This is truly a game of you know, 100 basis points here and there. Everything matters. And, and one of the big debates happening right now is, is the market set to deliver normal average returns like you're talking about, 9 to 10% over the long run? Uh, or as, as my mentor, Professor Siegel, talks about the real return. Jeremy Siegel at Wharton. Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, has written a book that says, you know, the long run real returns over all long-term time periods has been 6 to 7%. They call it the 6.5% is Siegel's constant. Uh, and, and so one of the questions is, is the market set to deliver that type of return from these valuations? levels? Or is the U.S. market very expensive and is going to deliver poor forward-looking returns? And I've got a lot of opinions on this. Professor Siegel does, and Med probably has his own take on, on where the valuations are. I say, you know, when you look at where, you know, I, I look at um, a dividend decomposition model that says if you take your starting dividend yield, you add your future dividend growth, and then you have a change in dividend valuation ratios, that is one way to, to measure returns on the market. So you take the 2% dividend yield on the S&P today, that's a starting yield. And the question is, what's dividend growth going to be going forward? You know, in the long-term average, has been 5% a year. So, so the guys who are very bearish say the returns are going to be 2 plus 5 minus something. So maybe minus 3, minus 4. This is a, something like the John Hussman type argument. So and, to account for inflation. Uh, to say that the market's expensive and they have to go down. So two, but in the end, Jeremy, you know, and I know that no one really knows that that old saying, the old saw that the market can remain irrational for longer than you can remain solvent. 
Sure. And I, I say, you know, the market's not super expensive. I think the dividend growth is going to be higher than 5%. I think you're going to get 7 to 8%. And a lot of it is because we're reducing shares outstanding now on a net basis. And we're doing, as more, we're doing more buybacks than dividends now, which is net net reducing shares outstanding. And so I think dividend growth is going to be higher than that 5%. Now, Meb Faber, talk to me. Uh, you know, when you're in uh, undergraduate finance class or in B school, one of the capstone things that they teach you is this idea of an efficient frontier. The one free luncheon is an, an investment investing is theoretically and increasingly practically, if you could own every possible asset in the world, we're talking American stocks, European stocks, emerging market stocks, uh, Philippine cement companies, uh, Peruvian alpaca fur trust, uh, things that zig when others zag. And of course, you throw in bonds and commodities and energy and fixed income uh, to get something in a composite sense, like a 10% a year to aspire that uh, to that. That's where you're golden. In practicality, it's vexingly hard to actually go out and pay people. Uh, your returns are going to be frittered away by uh, expenses of doing this and the transaction costs. You're putting out something today that uh, is taking advantage of the revolution in ETFs, which is kind of you know low rate, cut rate uh, investing, passive investing, to be able to to offer mom and pop out there this kind of holy grail of being to own, uh, being able to own everything. Yeah, you know, I actually was a biotech and engineer undergrad, so I, I never had those undergrad. Uh, classes in efficient markets, which is a good thing because a lot of our quant strategies, uh, you know, certainly don't don't believe in, in necessarily the efficient market. But yeah, what we wanted to well, say unpack is, look, that for people. The efficient market is that you just don't, you know, everything that can possibly be divined by the market is represented right. so, in the price right now. You know, if you're, if you're building an asset allocation portfolio and wanting to be truly diversified, and so that means not just U.S. stocks, but also foreign stocks, it always surprises people that the largest asset class in the world is actually not U.S.-based, it's, it's foreign bonds. And the U.S. is a percentage of global stock ret- uh, market cap is only, only almost half. So um, to really build a truly diversified portfolio, you want U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, foreign bonds, real estate, commodities, kind of all in one. And then once you have those components, the exact amount really doesn't matter much. So we've actually just did a survey in a book that we're going to publish hopefully later this month, maybe January. We looked at 15 of the top asset allocation strategies. So everything is published by Ray Dalio, you know, the largest hedge fund on the planet, to David Swinson, who runs the Yale Endowment, to the 60-40 permanent portfolio risk parity, everything we could possibly find. And what we found is if you look at the returns going back to the early 70s, and then look at, say, for example, real returns that Jeremy was talking about, the largest spread between the best performing and worst performing was only like 1.4%, mm. right? So shockingly, um, a lot of the the portfolios get to the same place. So what we said is, look, we want to launch a buy and hold portfolio, globally diversified, that an investor can go buy on the New York Stock Exchange, be tax efficient with one shot, and want it to be as cheap as possible. So we're not taking a management fee on it. It's the first ETF with a permanent 0% management fee. But what we do is we go and buy 29 ETFs that we think are the best of breed. So we'll own some Vanguard. We own some State Street. We own some of the Cambria funds, three funds. And we also own a handful of the Wisdom Tree funds. So hat tip to, to Jeremy and the crew over there. Um, and we really want it to be best of breed and agnostic. And the total expense ratio for that portfolio is only about 
0.29%. And give us an idea is, that that is a I mean what is the average ETF expense ratio? Average right ETF is 0.6, the average advisor is 1% and the average mutual fund is 1.25%. So now people don't think these numbers are big deals, but when you have a lost decade like the the aughts, the 2000s where the average market return was negative or piddling, um, every every one percentage point matters. Yeah, and if you think about it, if you expect say a real return of 5% over time, a 1% fee, or think of the investor that has an advisor that puts them in the average mutual fund. And this isn't even the expensive advisors in mutual funds. It's just the average advisor, average mutual fund. That's 2.25%. You're getting up to almost half of the real returns that you're looking for. So it, it can stack up, especially in compressed rate environments that I think we're in now, uh, can get expensive quick. So yeah, we wanted to, we wanted to be able to offer something that was uh, super low cost. Jeremy, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I think what Meb's doing there with the zero fee asset allocation ETF, it is a, a real, uh, I think, a brilliant idea on his part. And and I think it's going to be. Oh, he, he's a renegade of funk. This I guy. Mean, it's it's really interesting. I mean, he's he's putting the ETF.com called him you know the industry disruptor, and you're seeing a lot of people. You know, talk about this robo advisory model, which is which is it was clearly the direction Meb is going here, where you're giving you know the advice in one in one package, you know, and you've got a, a lot of these new startups from Wealthfront is one Betterment. You saw just the other day that Vanguard was getting into the low fee advising model, and, and even Vanguard, which is known as the low fee, is charging thirty basis points for their model, and here Meb is all in at thirty basis po- you know under thirty basis points. So it's that's it's a, a really interesting price point, and I, I commend you for for your thoughts on that. I mean it. Where do you see, you know, how do you see this competing with that, you know, wealth fronts of the world and those other advisory firms? Forget it. How do you see it competing with a Vanguard? I mean, you might hold Vanguard portfolios, Meb, you know, ETFs within it, but, um, you know, are they going to be out there kind of using you as a case study and look what advisors or individual portfolio managers can do with our products? Net, net, you're a, you're a competitor to them. Yeah. I mean, look, we think that the robo-advisors are a positive development. I like them. I've referred friends to them. Um, Can you and, tell and us quickly a, what a robo-advisor is? Robo-advisor is basically just an automated investment strategy. It's saying, usually they say, hey, we're going to go put you in 10 ETFs based on your risk tolerance. We'll rebalance them every X, every month, every year, whatever it may be. We'll try to tax harvest them and we'll do it for a low fee. So it's like um, HAL in 2001? Right, right. I like so, your but, risk tolerance. But the, the, the challenges will be a couple fold. So we don't necessarily see us competing with those firms, um, although we do think we have a better offering, right? So the ETF structure in and of itself will be more tax efficient. Um, we think we'll come in cheaper. And then also something we can't claim yet because the, the fund just started trading, but you can always do a little bit of short lending on the funds to the point where we, we would return all that to the shareholders, we think we could eventually get to a negative expense ratio, but that's over time. Um, but the people that all of these are disrupting are the people that charge, you know, one and a half, two percent 2% a year for buy and hold, right? And, and the advisors that are doing that, in, in our opinion, it's a dying breed, right? So um, we actually think a lot of advisors will use the CTF as a core holding because it's essentially a, what they call, um, you know, outsourcing the core and then they can go focus on, you know, what they do best, estate planning, financial planning, insurance, whatever it may be. Um, and in, even for the institutions and endowments, it becomes a global benchmark of sorts, right? So, so Meb, go- Meb, let's get, let's get to the heart of it. This, sure. this, pro- this ticker of yours, it's, it's uh, GAA is the ticker. Mm-hmm. It's like the flux capacitor of ETFs, right? Underlying 20,000 securities are represented by it. Mm-hmm. 
So that's like getting all of it in one, uh, things that you could not possibly go out and in a, in a tax efficient and cost efficient way, um, gather and harvest and package into one thing. Have you, have you ran the, I mean, what, what are the numbers going back on your model of, of how this has performed over say the last 10 years, 20, 30, 40, um, you know, past is not necessarily always prologue, but, uh, what can you tell us? Sure. So if you look at the actual allocation, um, it's meant to reflect the global portfolio. And within each asset silo, we like to have what we call tilts. So there are some tilts to, for example, value and momentum strategies. We wanted to move away a little bit from the market cap weighting, which historically has been a somewhat of a suboptimal way. So to for invest. example, if you own the Standard & Poor's 500, by definition, you're overweight in things like Apple, ExxonMobil, Microsoft, the biggest companies that kind of make it, you know, because this is done on market capitalization weighting. It's not like, you know, the, the, the US Senate where every state gets two senators. And, and historically, that's been a very suboptimal way to invest. Any other way of weighting, it doesn't matter, equal weighting, value weighting, dividend weighting, Almost everything beats that because it tends to overweight expensive stocks and bubbles, right? So if you think of the global portfolio, when Japan was one of the biggest countries in the world in the late 80s, super expensive, market cap weighting puts the biggest weight on that. It's just a momentum strategy. Mm -hmm. So it's a good first step, but it's not the best one. So historically, if you go back to 1973, um, this portfolio and many like it do around 9 10% a year. Um, the challenge, of course, with that is we had much higher inflation in the 70s and 80s than we do now. So real returns around 5% a year, 6% a year, kind of what Jeremy alluded to, um, but with, with nice low volatility, right? The volatility of this type of strategy is going to be much less than equities alone and drawdown as well, which, which is the maximum loss you experience at, at some point. Uh, so I think it's a nice, good core. And then if you want to go mess around and do some satellite stuff on the side, um, that's fine too. But this is a great core um, holding for, for the whole world. So Meb, when you think about all these different advisor models out there, they, they tend to provide a bunch of different buckets, let's say a conservative, moderate, aggressive, that'll have varying levels of equities re- relative to bonds, which is the really most important question for a lot of these. And you're really doing, you know, a one size fits all for people here. I mean, are, are your thoughts that you would eventually do, you know, more of these sort of targeted risk profiles and maybe talk about how you think about bonds in this portfolio? Because we talked about equities and you didn't really get to weigh in on whether you think equities are expensive, but bonds are certainly at one of their most expensive price points, especially all around the world. When you think about the German boomed at less than 1%, in the U.S. tenure at two twenty two thirty, you know, how do you think about the bond returns going forward, and how much you put in there in your allocation? Well, it's incredibly interesting times we live in, right? And I think we debated this on y'all's radio show months ago, where I I, I tend to be fairly pessimistic about U.S. returns. It's kind of boring being a quant like we are, right? Where you say, hey, look, you know, I think the U.S. stock market's going to do maybe three four percent nominal for the next ten years, but Hey, and I also understand that anything can happen, right? It, the, yeah, all we are is dust in the wind, man. What do we know? There's, there's a great Vonnegut quote, quote we use in one of our books on valuation where we say, you know, U.S. stock valuations, so we're talking 10, 10-year PEs, have traded at values as high as 45 in the past and values as low as 5. And so only thing that's changed, what Vonnegut says, is people's opinion of the place, right? And to be able to keep that thought in your head, the possibility that stocks could go up 100% or go down 80%, you almost have to be a comedian, right? You almost have to say it's the challenge of accepting the possible outcomes, however rare they may be, 
um, as challenging as an investor. But in general, yes, we expect U.S. stocks or U.S. stocks to have somewhat muted returns. Foreign, we think, is much more attractive. So it's important, we think, not to have a U.S. bias. Most investors have home country bias. Um, and then foreign sovereigns, yes, most of them are, are pretty low returns. So the biggest thing people can do is, is have a little bit lower expectation. Uh, are you, Jeremy, are you surprised, both of you actually going out, uh, it's the, the kind of the remnants of investor apathy coming out of 2008. I know you don't necessarily deal with the end investors. You're dealing with um, uh, investment advisors and people on the institutional level. But you would think after a, a bull market rebound like the kind we've had over the last five years that people would be a tad more giddy than they are? Well, what, one of the really interesting things, and this goes to, I think, you know, to uh, the industry that Meb and I are in, both the ETF industry, when you look at the last eight years, you know, there's been t- one huge trend, which is mutual funds have been net outflows for about $800 billion over the last last eight years in equity. So equity mutual funds continued basically redemptions. Now, we're, what's happening, though, is ETFs are continuing to get more exception with, uh, or adoption within the equity ETF space. So you've seen over a trillion dollars of flows go into equity ETFs. So net-net, people are only marginally more invested now than they were you know, eight years ago. There's been huge flows to bonds, which is one of those things that's suppressing the yields. And we come back to Meb on how much he's allocated to bonds in, in, in a few moments, I guess. But it's, 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 it is interesting, you know, how much money is on the sidelines is a question people ask. Can the market still Still go up if people are underinvested. Are they are they overinvested? Are they you know less money in cash and 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 you know there's not as much room to, to keep supporting equities. I think the 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 while although there has been huge flows, you know the market certainly rebounded. And I think people's equity allocations are higher than maybe uh, you know a longer term average. Now, Meb, uh, what, you know, on a year where the market say the the S and P let's does twenty eight percent or thirty percent, does the average uh, uh, you know residual mutual fund holder, equity holder, actually look at the portfolio and say, you know what, uh, they they did twenty six percent, so I'm going to fire them? Uh, no, they tend to be giddy and say that that's an absolute great number, and you've seen that over time that you forgive active managers for their their flaws. Is is that stat that eighty percent of active managers uh, don't beat the benchmark still correct? Yeah, one of one of the things you can count on most in our world is people chasing performance, and it's not just a retail thing. You know, I go to institutional conferences all the time, and the um, emotional behavior is it's it's hard to get around. You know, they were talking about um, the endowment model in the early two thousands, and then the bricks and housing, and and moving into real assets, commodities. And, and farmland and timber, and then after Nanotech, 08, Nanotech, you forgot about Nanotech. Well, uh, yeah, but that was a little later. Well, it was, it was 99, I mean, it's, there was years in between. But, and then, you know, after 08, it was all tail risk strategies and hedging strategies. And now what you're starting to see again, I mean, look, biotech has had back-to-back-to-back to back to back 40% annual returns the last three years. I'm starting to see the younger generation of people starting to get excited about risk again. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of it is slanted towards some of the private markets. You know, you're, you're seeing more interest in startups and entrepreneurship, less the public markets. And that's probably a um, echo of two massive bear markets in the past decade. Um, yeah, it's like general, thrice, thrice bitten, twice shy. Hold that thought. We're going to come back. I'm with Meb Faber, founder of Cambria Investment Management out of Los Angeles, and Jeremy Schwartz, director of research at Wisdom Tree. Stay with us. Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. We were talking to Meb Faber, founder of Cambria Investment Management out of Los Angeles. Um, investor sentiment out there. You're saying that you're seeing animal spirits return. 
I, I wonder among the demographic, people you constantly see this, millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Yers remain underinvested, remain, as I said, thrice bitten, twice shy. Like I've seen too many bad things happen. I've seen the bailouts. I've seen, uh, you know, the, the, the one percenters get rich at the expense of everyone else. Um, you know, considering that we are roughly in this demo in this cohort, uh, wh- what are you seeing on, the, uh, you know, in the trenches when you're out there marketing your ETF? Uh, you're, you're starting to see a little bit of interest pick back up. Uh, which is to be expected after a five-year bull market in U.S. equities. Everything in the U.S. has has done kind of great over the past five years. Um, The rest of the world, though, hasn't really played catch-up. You know, if you're a citizen, I imagine, in Europe or Russia or Brazil or a lot of these places where markets are really struggling, it's it's a totally different sentiment. But in general, people start to get uh, too excited at, at extremes, you know. When we're when we're if you track the AAII sentiment survey, when were people most bullish on U.S. equities? Is literally the exact worst time ever, worst month. Beginning you know, of two thousand and the end of two thousand seven is awful. Yeah, and uh, and when were they most bearish? It was it was at the bottom in '09. I mean, it's you could not write a script that is more opposite of what you should do. But in general, we're seeing uh, more optimism these days. I had the the beautiful dumb luck of being on an Acela train with Jack Bogle in March 2009, just as the market bottomed. I was profiling him uh, for my, my magazine then. And he told me that this was uh, really in, in kind of palindrome sense, as irrational on the other end as 2000 was on the exuberant end. And that this was a time, actually, when other people are fearful, as Buffett says, you should be greedy. Um, I am thinking about Jack Bogle this week because, you know, God bless his soul. He's still out there, heart transplant recipient. He's still uh, being the, 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 the codger and rabble rouser that he is, Jeremy Schwartz. He came out this week and was pretty outspoken and said that he doesn't see any merit in international investing, that the S&P 500 is really the best you can ac- hope to accomplish. Currency, other, other things that move too much just end up uh, uh, diminishing your returns over time. You don't buy that. No, I mean, he and he, he uses his own portfolio as an example where he thinks he gets the international exposure through the U.S. equities. And he said, you know, Warren Buffett in his charitable or in his in his legacy trust, he's putting 90 percent in the S&P 500 and 10 percent. Yeah, like when they ask Warren vehicle. Buffett if you have, you have money that's going to be inherited, you, he's pretty much saying that it should be substantially all of it in the S&P 500, the 500 big blue chip companies, the Microsofts and GEs of the world that there's a stat that about half of their revenue is derived overseas. There is there is some truth to that. and, and the, But the big question is... Is, you know, when you think about the U.S. market, he's not suggesting you just buy four of the ten sectors. He's not telling you to buy stocks lettered A through you know J and ignore K through Z. And that's an effect when you're buying the S and P. That's what you're doing compared to the global market. We talked about the U.S. is forty to, is less than half of the the global market cap. So why are you ignoring that uh, the rest of the world? And, and and there is definitely a debate about valuations in the U.S. There may be better global opportunities on, on a valuation standpoint. And so the question is why just make a big bet on the U.S. I think that's taking, you know, putting too much eggs in that one basket. I'd say, you know, be much more globally diversified. And I think, you know, that's what Meb was saying earlier as well. Meb, what is diversification? I know it's a meaning of life question. I've asked you before. There's a very basic model out there, uh, you know, cookie cutter, 60, 40, uh, 60% in equities, 40% in fixed income. Within equities, you could put a little bit in small caps. But I see a lot of people skip any mention of emerging markets, which really have had a, a you know, if you back out what's happened in the last four years, and bad news recently out of Brazil and Russia and China. Uh, these have been on fire. This is it's been the decade of emerging markets. They've come back. They've had the rip roaring middle classes. How can you avoid that exposure? 
Well, we think it's incredibly important to be diversified. And so we'll talk about equities first and then portfolio in general. But equities, you know, U.S. is half of the world market cap. So at a minimum, you should have half in foreign. But no one does because of what we call this home country bias. Everyone wants to invest in what's safe and what they know. And so it doesn't just happen in the U.S. It happens to Canadians. It happens to Australians where they invest most of their money in their own market. And concentration risk is really one of the basic but but most basic dumb mistakes investors will make. And look, Jack Bogle, one of my heroes, I mean, incredible icon in our industry. And when he made that statement this week, I very passionately disagree. And and ironically, but humorously, Vanguard, uh, the research group actually disagrees with him as well. They have a report on home country bias and say, you should be putting X amount in foreign. But it's particularly important now where the U.S. is expensive. It's not crazy. It's not a bubble, but it's on the expensive side. But the good news is the rest of the world is cheap, and in some cases, incredibly cheap. We think a lot of Europe, Eastern Europe, Brazil, Russia, a lot of the really terrible geopolitical headlines um, is where you want to be investing. And a lot of that is simply value. And, And value is often the things that have already gone down the most. So you're investing in things that have already gone down 30, 50, Do you, do you though, do you buy what these indexes are measuring? I mean, after all, let's say the MSCI, MSCI Emerging Markets Index still uh, values Korea as a developed market. I think you can make an argument that Korea was an emerging market, certainly in the late 90s when it had its woes. And if you go back uh, to geopolitical instability, but now, uh, you know, Israel is a developed market, but not an emerging market, but then is, you know, Korea isn't. I mean, the classifications themselves are are pretty crazy. I think Greece has moved from developed to emerging, and if it keeps going, is going to be frontier before I thought, oh, Argentina's already been bumped <laughs> to frontier. But uh, not too long ago, Argentina was South America's hot market. And Colombia, a country I visited, uh, which was very nearly a failed state in 2002, has now one of the highest priced uh, stock markets in South America. Um, so, you know, you never know with these things. I was actually really unpopular in Bogota about a year and a half ago when I went to give a talk and said, look, I love your people. The land is beautiful. I come in food. peace. You're a beautiful people. <laughs> you, but you're, it's like a Seinfeld you're episode. Ex- you're the most expensive stock market in the world right now. Go home, Janky. Um, go home. Right. I, I, but, you know, everyone came up to me afterward and said, Meb, this is why this time is different. This is why we're allowed to be expensive. And of course, they They've had really struggling returns since. But here's the thing with valuation is you really need to take a 10,000-foot view where, um, in general, the benefit is you're buying the cheap stuff, which can easily get cheaper. Look at Greece. I think it was down 12% yesterday. Yeah, Greece is the word. But you're avoiding the most expensive, which is equally as important. You're never going to get it right exactly on the timing or on the exact countries or stocks. But in general, if you invest in what's cheap, and avoid what's expensive, it does better over time. Any given year, I mean, look, you could underperform 20%. But over time, value investing makes much more sense than market cap or the dumbest thing, buying the most expensive. You know, Japan is the all-time great example, the biggest bubble ever in the 80s. They've had horrible returns since, and the main reason being they simply had the biggest bubble we've ever seen. Now, Jeremy, it brings to mind that experiment in kindergarten, you know, where kids do the the darndest things. Uh, they 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 put a kid in a room and they're like, "Here, I can give you uh, two M and M's right now. If uh, these M and M's are still here when I return in thirty minutes, you could have a bag of M and M's, and you could always separate the kids that understand." immediate gratification versus deferred gratification. That's always been a dilemma, especially with what you guys are preaching in value and dividend reinvestment. 
it's kind of hard to keep your eyes on the ball when, you know, what was the maximum drawdown in 2008? It was down 55%. You know, I had cousins I didn't even know I had that were calling me from uh, their broker's offices, you know, 20 something people saying, I need to get the heck out. I was like, look, all I know, you know, I have, I was not around during the depression and uh, I, I certainly wasn't investing in the era of the nifty 50 and the oil shock of the early seventies, but I'm told uh, that this stuff course corrects. So you guys have a really difficult time out there telling people ignore the headline, Facebook, Apple, you know, uh, market returns and think about the things that, that are not working right now and be overweight in them. I mean, that's, that's certainly, I think the benefits of having a systematic process. So having a, an all asset allocation strategy like Meb's offering, I think is it removes you from making those bad decisions, having a rules-based rebalance, like we do in our dividend weighted indexes every year in December, we rebalance and we're going like to sell the, the big biggest winners. loser. You ha- you're forced to do it. We don't right. look, we just sell things that have gotten more expensive. We buy things that got cheaper every year. We're posting our new U.S. rebalance files today. And so you'll see the new you know set of stocks and what's gone up the most tech has gone up. What's getting killed the most energy. So what are you going to do? You're going to add and subtract based on those relative price movements. So you have to have a discipline to do that. It's sometimes hard to make those decisions. Russia is an example in emerging markets where you know a lot of people don't want the headline risk. But if you're buying based on what's gotten cheaper, Russia's gotten cheaper. So you're going to add, you know, in some emerging market strategies, we add to those type of positions. And I know Meb has a a similar process as well. And that you you just go there systematically without making that. Meb, how do you avoid the value traps or the the, the stories that are going to get more broken and could end up causing you uh, lots of grief over the long run? I mean, certainly Argentina comes to mind. You could have, you know, other people call it catching a falling knife. Um, I close my eyes and hold my nose usually. Um, well, look, look the, one of the challenges for us is we run both value and momentum strategies. And my favorite intersection is when value and, and momentum um, are in the same asset class or security. That's not the case in the world right now. Most of the momentum and trends have been in U.S.-based assets, stocks, bonds, real estate, um, and, and anything that's not U.S. dollar-based, foreign stocks and commodities um, have done very poorly. But what's cheapest in the world right now, we think, is, is actually foreign stocks. So um, if you're doing purely a value approach, uh, one of the ways to do it is you have a very long-term rebounds frequency. Jeremy mentioned a year. That's the, the highest frequency you should do a deep value rebounds. Two years is fine. Um, and you simply just don't pay any attention in the meantime. That's hard to do. And you diversify across a bunch of names. If you ever just go by the cheapest, um, you could you could end up losing you know 80%. Now, on the flip side, uh, using a trend-following filter, something as basic as a 200-day moving average or 10-month simple moving average. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're talking Esperanto here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Technical <laughs> details. Yeah. So those any sort of long-term trend-following methodologies, we published a paper way back in 06 that shows by using a trend-following methodology and having an exit, uh, you do reduce your volatility and drawdown. You don't really increase your return at all, but you have the, the most important thing in investing, which is living to invest another day. But it becomes more of a philosophical question. If I have no problem with buy and hold investing, but you have to stick to it and, and not get out when you have the drawdown. So, the, so this GAA fund that you launched, is it, you mentioned early on that it was buy and hold, but do you, is it going to be more one of these, you're gonna, are you employing those, that trend following, that two-year rebalance? How do you think about your that GAA fund that you're launching? It's, it's simply a buy and hold. It The underlying, some of the ETFs have tilts, so some have a value methodology, some have a momentum methodology, but this is a buy and hold rebound strategy. We have another fund called Global Momentum 
that is a highly concentrated momentum and trend fund that can be up to 100% cash and bonds. So it, it, it's just, we try to design strategies that fit what people are looking for. And I put 100% of my net worth in our funds. Um, I particularly, you know, am drawn towards trend-following type of strategies, but uh, GAA is one that I I own now and will continue to buy and, and think it's a totally viable strategy for um, a core portfolio too. Meb, tell me what you do with commodities. There's been a certain amount of controversy over commodity ETFs. It sounds great. You could buy, uh, what is it, the USO represents a barrel of oil, but these are distorted. They don't exactly track perfectly because of all these various things. You know, it takes two to contango, crude backwardization. I don't even know, but I was just told that it's not as as purely tracking as, say, a Vanguard or Spider or S&P index fund is. Yeah, we love commodities in general, and I actually include them in our strategic allocation. It's it's important, not so much in the current environment of, of disinflation or low inflation, but if you have another 1970s, uh, it's, a, it's a great hedge to the portfolio. So whether it's gold or, or broad-based commodity index, we think that is a good from a strategic standpoint. Even better, I've long been a fan of managed futures and, and trend-following CTAs. Oh, Jerry Parker. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jerry Parker. So those have existed for over 40 years. Um, I call that my desert island strategy. If I was had to pick one way to have a portfolio that could exist for whatever environment it is, managed futures are one. And they've been terrible since the bottom in 08. Um, last four years, they've, they've really gone nowhere until this year. And they're actually, most of them are having a great year this year because they're um, long a lot of the stuff that's been going up and short all the commodities that have been going down. Meb, Meb I got to ask you a personal question. How old are you, sir? 37. 37, man. Like me, you, you, haven't been, you weren't even around for the last episode of Good Times. Well, actually, you uh, were. But you, you didn't kind of realize it. So do you put your faith in backtesting models and going back and looking at neat history? I know Jeremy Siegel at Wharton tries to, or, or you know, um, uh, Robert Schiller at Yale, they try to build these models that go back several centuries. But like I asked before, what the heck do we know? There's going to be no analogous shock to what happened with OPEC in the early 70s or um, uh, the way interest rates had to be ratcheted up violently in the early 80s. I mean, what exactly are we modeling for? You know, one of my favorite books is Triumph of the Optimist. And it's written by a handful of British professors. It's a coffee table book. It's about 100 bucks. So um, you could probably get it at a library rather than rather than buy it off Amazon. But it shows world equity bond bill returns all the way back to 1900. And what is nice about it is it shows what's possible. It shows that an entire stock market like Russia or China can essentially evaporate, right? A country can appropriate assets. It shows that markets like the U.S. stock market will have an 80% drawdown. Um, 80% shows, peak to trough plunge. Right. It, it shows that bonds, while they look like they may not have as big drawdowns and nominal ter- returns, once you account for inflation, bonds have also had 50% losses. So you start, to, you start to get an understanding of what's possible in history. And once you at least kind of have a good idea of what can happen, um, you start to think about ways to build portfolios to make them more resilient to any possible outcome. And forecasting what's going to happen over the next five years is incredibly difficult. Don't know what sort of, I mean, if you look at last year, everyone in the world was expecting higher interest rates. What happened this year? Bonds have had one of their best returns ever. Long bonds, you know, zero coupon bonds. And this is a bond bull market that's gotten really long in the tooth. I mean, 
you know, 32-year bond bull market. These things are not supposed to last as long as they have. I want to, I want to go back to the question on commodities because I think it's an interesting question. And Meb brought up the trend following and managed future strategies. Meb, when, you know, when you value a stock, you have the cash flows, the dividends and earnings that you get from it. You know, when you get gold or you buy oil, you know, the, the sort of famous Howard Marks and, uh, you know, Warren Buffett, you just look at gold as this sort of shiny cube that it's hard to really know what the actual, you know, true worth is or value it. Do you, have you seen, and oil has sort of fallen off a cliff this year and in, there's a lot of speculation on why oil is falling, but you had the OPEC who didn't sort of cut production. You know, maybe we're going up against Russia. Do you, how would you value oil? I mean, do you have a sense of how, how you could construct a fair value? Yeah, I'm sure people can. I don't. I have, I have no clue. Um, and what's interesting about commodities in general is they're in the real asset bucket. So there's other ways to get commodity-like exposure tips would be one or even real estate to an extent. Um, but as far as the valuation, there's a lot of people that don't know. If you look at a lot of the, mo- the models for commodities, it's simply what's gone down the most over the past five years is, is what people <laughs> look at something to, to be favorable. Um, it's tough. You know, it's a pure sl- supply and demand market and um, price and in this case is, is the way that we look at it. But yeah, it, uh, from, a funda- from a fundamental perspective, I don't, I don't want to compete with the Cargills of the world, that's for sure. Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. We are talking to pretty much the most generous uh, and well-informed one percenters you'll ever meet. When I say one percenters, you know, top one percenters, it's not pejorative. They're, 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 they traffic in percentage points because, as I said earlier, slow and steady wins the race. And you'd be amazed at what um, 7% over 30 years versus 9 and 10% would do to a $10,000 investment. So stay with us as we continue the conversation. Full disclosure, thanks for joining us. Med Faber, sir, uh, what about frontier markets? We've done an episode on them before. These are the bleeding edge of emerging markets, places like Bangladesh, the Philippines. Earlier, you and I talked about Colombia, which wasn't a frontier market, but uh, was close to being a failed state in 2002, now is looked at as, as one of the hottest emerging markets out there. How do you uh, treat the, the next thing to happen in an underappreciated asset class overall? Um, if you look at world GDP and weight stock markets by GDP rather than market cap, which is simply price, that actually performs much better than the, than the price-based benchmark. And if you look at world GDP right now, U.S. is only a fraction. I think it's down around a quarter or even a fifth of world GDP. And a lot of the foreign markets are much higher. Um, and likely that's going to be the direction the world's going to go. Frontier markets, um, you know, that's a tiny slice of the pie. If you are an interp- inter- enterprising investor, I think there's a lot of opportunity. It harkens back to the the days of Jim Rogers' books, right? Adventure capitalist and well, emerging market. You know, emerging markets were exotic too in the early eighties. Yeah. You had to go out and buy some heavy load funds for people to do the heavy blocking and tackling for you. What's um, tantalizing and and at once scary is the fact that you can get ETF access to these things right now. It's like it's like going into a uh, cupcake shop. One of the things we haven't really talked about, so we go on this international side, and, I, and I, I'm fully with Meb that I think it's the most important thing to be globally diversified. I think the big debate that's happening now, that's still just in the beginning stages of the debate, is really, and it goes back to one of the, the quotes you said about Bogle, when he talks about what, you know, why he doesn't have international, he says, well, you have the currency risk. And I don't know that people, when they go internationally in the developed world, so I'm going to talk about Europe, Japan, and, and sort of the, the developed markets, 
why they should take currency risk when they go there. Right now, you have free cost to hedge. You know, Brazil is a different story. You'll pay 10 to 12% to hedge the real because it's a high interest rate country. But the developed world is a free option. Uh, and so I believe people should be doing a lot more currency hedging internationally. Uh, and I know it's it's sort of a, it's a, it's one of these sort of shakier conventional wisdom type feelings. A lot well, of people- Well, so too is the other product that Wisdom Tree is, is launching this week. It's a one that backs out state-owned enterprises, which is a huge chunk. If you see all the yeah. bad news about- the state oil giant Petrobras in Brazil. I mean, what are emerging markets when you X out the state-owned companies? Right now, about 30% of a broad market index is state-owned enterprises, So, and, and eight of the 10 largest companies. So you think you mentioned Petrobras in Brazil, all the big Chinese banks uh, are state-owned, and, and in Russia, you have Gazprom and Rosneft and a lot of the other uh, energy companies. So we did we, con- we tried to construct an index sort of talking with some of our, our, our bigger clients of what things that they were thinking about. And this was a factor you're seeing a lot in the institutional consulting community write about state-owned companies. And so we tried to not make a country bet or a sector bet when constructing it. We basically are targeting the starting universe you know, which is has 18, 20% China, has you know very much a broad market EM feel, but we remove that one factor of state-owned. Now, state-owned is the cheapest, right? So Russian energy companies are a few PEs and Chinese financials are 5 PEs, 6 to 7% dividend yield. So if you're a value investor, you're going to those. But if you're worried about that one factor of state ownership, we now have sort of the first choice to, to X that out. Meb, what's the best way to play emerging markets where you're not getting, I mean, there've been huge leaps and bounds in transparency and liquidity and uh, corporate governance, uh, as a famous emerging market investor I interviewed said that a lot of these dictators realized at some point that there was more money to be made in privatizations and market-based reforms than just, you know, pure naked plundering. Uh, what's your preferred way of, of, of playing EM? Um, you know, I mean, we have a fund called Global Value that buys what we consider to be the 11 che- cheapest markets in the world. So you get a basket of Brazil, Russia, whole swath of Eastern Europe, Um that fund has also got pummeled this year as, as a lot of the cheap stuff have, have gotten cheaper. Um, and we think that's a great way. Now, it's simply buying a, a foreign index we think is great too. You know, Jeremy and I usually agree on many things. The currency debate is an interesting one, and it's one that I'm somewhat agnostic about um, in equities. I think you should absolutely hedge foreign bond um, exposure because you're introducing a lot of volatility to an asset class that historically doesn't have one. Um, with equities, I think it's either pick your poison one way or the other. You either hedge or you don't, but you have to stick with it because real currency rates are fairly stable over time. The key word being over time. That doesn't mean they can't go up and down 20, 30% in one year. Um, so I'm of the belief you either got to pick one or the other. Uh, and then but the challenge, especially for Americans, is currencies. There's a great quote where someone says, look, currencies, they aren't difficult. They're just confusing. And, and that's why, they, that's why you know, to play to play devil's advocate, and certainly Jack Bogle's no devil in my book. I admire him. Uh, you know, this is what American companies do. They pay the top attorneys and tax people and investment bankers to do esoteric currency swaps for them. So in the end, you're getting exposure, you know, with a Coca-Cola to emerging markets with sophisticated governance, uh, SEC type uh, uh, purview and uh, uh you know, the hedges that you would not be able to pull off as an individual investor. Isn't there something to be said for that? Yeah, I agree. And, and one of the interesting things, I, mean, I wrote a currency book a few years ago and I've never published it. We even have a you just do that fund. in your free time? We have a currency no fund. Hacky sack? We have a currency fund filed, not, not since I grew up in Colorado. It's been a while since I've done any hacky sacking. But the, uh, You've got to try hacky sacking in Colorado now. Right, right. It's pro- you yeah. know what I mean. All right, I go ahead. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, 
I'll be at a Broncos game probably here in a few weeks, so I, I imagine we'll see some in the parking lot. But um, the the thing about currencies is, so people just aren't that interested. We have a currency fund file that we may never launch because I don't know if anyone understands it or wants it. You can come up with very, very basic index strategies the same way you do in stocks based on value, based on trend and momentum, based on carry, which is the most famous one, that come up and treats currencies as an independent asset class. And so you can have an, an alternative asset class. Currency is technically largest asset class in the world if you consider them a separate one. Um, and that correlates to nothing. But the problem is, you know, what we struggle with as product providers, does anyone want it? Does anyone care? And I, I don't know that they do, although Wisdom Tree has actually had incredible success with currency hedge versions of, of other products. Um, so we'll see. It, it remains to be seen. But currencies, I think, are fascinating. Um, we even spent a little time writing about some of these alternative currencies and ideas, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin. Well, let's, like let's bring it back to the mom and pop level. Jeremy Schwartz. Talk to the person out there who's going to be a new parent, who has a kid who's looking at a 529, who sees a lot of confusion, who may be remorseful. You know, I missed out on this five-year bull market. I was my own worst enemy. I pulled my money out in 2008 and 2009. But now my calculus is T minus 18 years. I want to get my kid to college. You as a parent and an investor and an asset allocation wonk, what do you think is the best I mean, the, the path of least resistance is just put in, a, in an index fund, like Jack Bogle says, an S&P 500 fund. It's the, the best worst you could do. Yeah. But what, what could you do with just a little homework? Hold, hold, hold the people's hands out there. I mean, the second option is to buy a, a globally diversified fund, like something that Med's talking about today, uh, an all-asset allocation fund. Within equities, you could buy global ACWI-type all-markets index. Now, that has the currency risk. If you're willing to subdivide it- Now, these are it, freely available to anyone. There are no big barriers to yeah, entry. There's, there's a fund out there. You get you for the global allocation for 10 to 12 basis points. You get one fund and have all your equities. So that's $12 for every $10,000 invested? Yeah. Yeah, and now I I just believe, um, as Meb was saying, that the, you know the currencies it, currencies are tough to predict. They're confusing. They move around with a lot of without a lot of rhyme to reason. And when I'm buying international, I'm buying it because I think the stocks are cheaper than the U.S. So I want to globally diversify my equities. I'm not necessarily trying to make a bet on the euro or the yen. I don't really know where they're going. And you know, I, I think sort of re if you don't have a conviction of that, why always have that bet? Is the is a decision I'm, or for the the concept I'm, I'm talking about? And so I would, especially in Europe and Japan, I would be currency hedging. But on a wait, broad wait, 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 okay, come on, we want to bring it back to the mom and yeah, pop well, level, my man. There are people out there, you know, listening. My my bambino is going to be born. Cash is not earning anything. Bonds, you're telling me that we're coming off of a record thirty year bull market and we can be going into inflationary waters. What you know, I'm I'm not one for for giving people stock advice at cocktail parties or this is the next hot thing. But I do believe in hand holding. I think one of the tenets of this show is that we look out for the little guy or we connect the little guy to the big guy. Um, and so you, when you go at home, you know you're you're John Q. Public as well. What is that advice? And Meb, I'm going to hold you to it too, even though you're a you know a bachelor who likes to go to In and Out Burger out west. But hold that thought. What would you What would you in 30 seconds, Jeremy, advise? Number one, be globally diversified. So if I had to pick one fund, I would buy all you know an all country world index. So I was just buying one fund. ACWI, all country world index. Something like that. Now, if I am saying, what is the market? I want to. I, I I try to allocate a different portfolio. I want to try to find what is the most exciting opportunity around the world. I'm still a big believer in Japan right now as a currency hedge strategy for Japan. I think it's got one of the more exciting things from a from a sort of high level what the government's doing, what the the Bank of Japan's doing. I think you're going to see some of the best returns 
returns there. But again, I would only be currency hedged for Japan. If you thought the currency was going up, I wouldn't be in Japan. Uh, and so I still think that's a one of the, my most favorite parts of the world to be investing in today. But this MEB strategy of, you know, you can't beat the market, so be the market, and not just be the market with 500 securities. He's proposing you can actually efficiently hold 20,000 securities with less uh, heartburn in the interim, right, MEB? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a strategy that's kind of a steady eddy, uh, should perform well in any market environment over time. You know, for those investors that are looking for something a little more spicy, you could certainly tilt even more towards foreign equities, uh, or even, you know, if you're feeling really crazy, something like our global value strategy, uh, that's going to be highly volatile. But yeah, if you're looking for something that you're going to put in your child's 401k, uh, 401k, child's, you know, 529 or college plan, certainly the global asset allocation is a is a broadly diversified global fund. And we cannot underscore enough how much easier this is to do now, just in the last five years, with the granularity of ETFs that are available out there. Like if you have a Vanguard fund, they don't charge you for for you know buying their own ETFs. With certain other brokerage firms, they don't charge for Schwab ETFs or iShares ETFs. The the commissions that used to be prohibitive now, and and we're not talking about trading a portfolio here. We're about buying, holding, keeping minuscule costs, reinvesting dividends. You know, be merciless when it comes to the amount of, of dispassion you're, you're supposed to bring to this equation. Um, you can do this in a way, and, and, and the barriers to entry, correct me if I'm mistaken, it's not like you need $10,000 to open up a brokerage account anymore. You don't, you know, you can you can do this. Vanguard has target funds. Wisdom Tree has products out there. Meb, the all-in-one thing you're doing, you know, it's immensely accessible to the little guy. Yeah, we, think we, we completely agree. If you look at the days of the 12B1 fees, the front-end loads of mutual funds, the 2 3% funds, um, you know, those days are numbered. Like Jeremy mentioned, a lot of the flows coming out of the high-fee world and net net, it's a it's a wonderful wonderful time to be an investor. Yeah, and and the advisor community is getting more and more options. Uh, they're 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 going to be able to focus on less on just portfolio management. They can use these sort of very low fee allocation type strategies and really get clients to be focusing on you know what are you know more financial planning and keeping people. I mean the the clients tend to be you know, from from interactions I've had their own worst enemy where they try to sell at the worst time as we were talking about the the behavior. So I think you know they're the, even the advisor role changes now with more of these sort of low fee allocation type strategies out there. So the the other question we have as a corollary on this is what does this do to the ownership society if if you know everybody's increasingly espousing this you know index fund and index ETF idea of passive ownership um, they uh, the, the costs are so low and the fees that they're passing are so low on the clients that is a Vanguard or Wisdom Tree going to go to bat for people when a company does something wrong? I mean, it's one thing to be a hedge fund that has a portfolio of eight or nine stocks that gets paid 2% upfront and 20% of the profits, and they're paying you to go out there and fight for every 100 basis points. But you guys, I mean, this is one of the the, the left-handed criticisms against the whole ETF and indexing wave is that you're you know, you own you own it for better or for worse. Well, that's where you have some of these. What you know, the the, te- the technical term is smart beta, but or that's sort of popular term right now is smart beta. But you have these strategies that will, when stocks become more expensive, sell. I mean, I see that's the, one of the biggest risks to the market is you pay way too much for the market and. And and even more so than some of these these other things about the advocating for what the what the companies are doing. If you track companies that are distributing their cash to shareholders, whether through dividends or dividends plus buybacks, as Med looks at, those are you know positive corporate governance type stocks, and we think are are ways to own the market in a little bit smarter way. 
Meb, what do you think? Well, there's always going to be the short-selling hedge funds out there that will keep markets in line. And, and I'm a huge advocate of short-selling as a way to keep companies from doing the screwy things they shouldn't be doing um, and illegal things or fraudulent things. And it's a, it's a huge benefit to capital markets. Um, and typically that resides in the hedge fund world because, like you said, it, it involves a ton of fundamental work, forensic accounting, whatever it may be. But it makes the capital markets much more efficient and, uh, and also much more fair. You're probably not going to see a lot of that in the ETF space, uh, which tends to be more index or quantitatively based. But we, we f- I fully support uh, that part of the world. And so what's going to happen to the active mutual funds in the world? I know you're here, you're not here to throw shade on the fidelities and T. Rowe prices of the world, but you know, back in the day, we had the, the Peter Lynch model, like, you know, buy what you love, own what you know, and the commercials and the advertising and, um, uh, you know, justifying charging people 1.2%. It seems like all that by function of apathy and by function of the merciless price competition in the ETF space, that industry is dying rather rapidly. They're trying to get these untransparent active ETFs. And so you see all these applications for non-transparent active. Meb has been doing a lot of active ETFs, fully transparent. We've been on, on the equity side, we've been doing it fully transparent active ETFs on the currency, fixed income and alternative side. We're not big believers that people really want non-transparent. Um, you know, the mutual, I can understand why a fund provider wants it. They want to pretend like they have some secret sauce that they don't want the world to know what they're holding. Um, but we've, you know, we've, I think, uh, have demonstrated people like transparency and and it's you know they're they're just feeling pressure I and mean, there is this benefit of the tax efficiency of ETFs and I think that's why more and more are trying to convert their mutual funds in towards that ETF format and so that alone would be an improvement for them um, but they they can't get around the fact that they've got to you know pretend they don't have a secret sauce Meb what would you suggest to uh, parents out there new parents to be people who want to get a, a long-term uh, position who have a lot of confusion right now who are in no position to let's say, uh, judge between robo-advisors, what, what would you do? Well, I mean, honestly, our fund, that question was the reason that we launched it is a day did not go by where I would talk to a friend or family member and say, Meb, I got a bonus or I have some money, a little money around to invest, what should I do? And I'd say, well, you should go buy these handful of Vanguard or Wisdom Tree funds and I'll email you and I'd check back a month later and I'd say, hey, did you do that? And they'd say, well, no, I, it seems too complicated. I don't know how to buy them, whatever. So I'd just say, look, now this kind of why we designed this fund and say, look, just go buy this fund. You can be done with it with one fund. You own 20,000 securities. Um, and, and one comment that I, I wanted to add based on what you guys were just talking about, um, two of our funds that we run currently used to be hedge funds, right? So we used to have them as private structures, but, but being product agnostic said, look, ETF is clearly a better structure. It's more transparent. I agree with Jeremy. It makes no sense to have ETFs that are non-transparent. Um, and we converted them essentially to ETFs. We think it's a, a much better mousetrap and a huge one that, that not a lot of people talk about or fully understand is the tax benefits of an ETF structure versus mutual fund or hedge fund. Yeah, and th- that that's absolutely, I mean, I think that's why you're seeing all these mutual funds realize that they just for that tax benefit alone, they're, they're trying to get into the into the industry. Uh, and so we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, the, the thing that we have to see as well is just the trading of the ETF itself. You know, they, there's an option to trade intraday, but you don't need to trade intraday. And so one of the ways, you know, e- people get executed is they sort of get NAV and sort of execution like a mutual fund where you get priced once a day at the end of the day. Hopefully there's more and more adoption of that type of structure as well for ETF so that they're on par with a mutual fund. You don't have to trade intraday for sort of no- lower volume newer ETFs. 
you know, the evolution of this, guys, in closing just blows my mind. When I uh, came to the United States from Iran uh, in the late 70s, my father, you know, he was really proud to take me to the savings alone and offer me my first passbook uh, savings account. Um, you know, they give you a toaster and a blender and whatnot. And, you know, after six or seven years, when we realized that, you know, you have to do more things to prepare for college, there was this this table at the bank branch that would sell you mediocre, high-priced mutual funds. And there'd be kickbacks and miscellaneous fees all around. And you'd have to call 800 numbers and wait for a packet and send a certified check. And uh, to think about the evolution now, when, when you, Meb, talk about one security that's going to be traded throughout the day that's super low cost, that gives you access in one fell swoop to 20,000 securities across the globe. I think that that's, that's kind of mind-blowing. Um, and I just think it speaks to the level of, of innovation that's happened in finance. I know when we talk about financial innovation, it's typically pejorative in light of what happened with the credit bubble and crash. But um, you know what we're on the brink of right now, and I think about how we'll be talking about this 10 years down the road, looking back, is pretty exciting stuff. And to that end, I thank you for joining us. Meb Faber, founder of Cambria Investment Management, an LA-based investment advisor that is launching a uh, global asset allocation super ETF today. Uh, Thank you so much, sir. It's been a lot of fun uh, with you and Jeremy both, and I look forward to chatting again soon. And Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Full disclosure, we'll be back next week. 